I was terrified. And then I kind of reminded myself that like, I'm not involved in the drug trade. Let's just break this down. I'm here to honor my friend. Mm. You know, I'm doing this thing. And if they want to kill me for that, you know, like, I'm here running a risk anyway. That was Corey Bellier. And this is the Ocean Riders podcast. The Ocean Riders podcast, conversations with creatives, entrepreneurs, thinkers and dreamers who also happen to be surfers. My name's Imi and I'm your host. Hi Ocean Riders, today I'm very excited to be back behind the mic after almost a year's absence. I really thank you for your patience and for downloading this, how could you say, renaissance episode. According to podcasting gurus, consistency is key and I have failed miserably in churning out episodes every week. The more I waited, the worse I felt, but at the same time, I had the feeling that as the episodes dropped, the quality just wasn't up to what I had imagined for you. Making an episode is not an easy task and I didn't want to compromise quality over quantity. So here I am, almost a year later, behind the mic with a bunch of really exciting episodes in store. After having spent the past year on a massive e-commerce project, um, I'm talking to you from the French Alps where I'm supervising no more than a building project. Jack of all trades, eh? Yeah, right, master of none. Anyway, the fact I've been landlocked for the past couple of months has has emphasised how much I miss the ocean and gliding on the waves and how much I've missed producing episodes for you. Now to today's guest, Corey Bellier. Corey is an author, a teacher, an adventurer, and of course, a surfer. Corey was originally from New Jersey, and he now shares his time between his language school in Panama and his university job in California. His personal journey is something really special, and it was a treat to have Corey on the show to have a chat and talk about his book, The Pathfinder's Diaries, Tales Sculpted by the Sea. The Pathfinder Diaries is a reference to Corey's car, a Nissan Pathfinder, that he drove from California down to Ushuaia. The book is a compilation of exciting and touching stories of the adventures he had on his improvised journey to the tip of South America in his camioneta. The reason his journey was improvised was actually the passing of his best friend Mike. He was on a quest to disperse Mike's ashes in the best surf spots on the continent to pay a final tribute to his friend. Personally, I went from laughter to tears reading Corey's book, and I really encourage you to get a copy. Corey's got some amazing stories to tell, and I'm really glad he gets to share them with you, Ocean Riders, today. The world needs more adventurous surf stories like his. So without further ado, please welcome Corey Bellier. Hello, Corey, and welcome to the Ocean Riders podcast. How are you today? Aki. In Panama, <laughs> in Panama, it's a great thing that they say, aki. And so, you know, aki means here. And what better place than here right now with you? Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you very much. I guess perhaps you could introduce yourself to the listeners and let us know how you consider yourself an ocean rider. My name is Corey Bellier. I'm an author and a lover of the ocean. I I do everything pretty much aquatic that I can. Right now I'm in New Jersey and like where you're at in France, 
a lot of times we don't have waves to surf. So what, what can we do? We can go sailing, we can go diving, we can go fishing. So as long as I'm around the sea, I'm a happy camper and I'm happy right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So where are you from originally? Yeah, so I'm originally from New Jersey and uh, I grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey and it was two hours from the ocean. But every year the family would, would go down to the Jersey Shore and we'd spend two months summer months, uh, June and July at the beach. And then we go back and then I'd be stuck in a desk, you know, <laughs> thinking about the ocean. And growing up, I always thought that surfing was just something that you did in the summer, you know, and it really took me going to the University of North Carolina when I was 18 to go to, to college that I realized that you could actually surf year round. And how much better is it to be by the water year round? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And so who actually surfed or how were you introduced to surfing in the first place? Okay. I love this because I always listen to people talk about these beautiful and vivid visuals of them surfing, catching their first wave, going right and left. And say, oh, my God, that's so amazing. <laughs> my story's not like that. My very first wave I'll never forget it. I got a board for $100 at a garage sale, and I went out there, the Surf Tech, a 6-1, and the very first wave I caught, I nosedived, and I, I sliced my red Umbro shorts. So I sliced my leg. I started bleeding. I was crying. I was about 10 years old, and kind of like your surfing accident, I said, screw this. I don't know this. I'm going to go back to boogie boarding. So then I, I went back and started being a boogie boarder for a while, for about three years. And then, then there was all of a sudden this transition that I started standing on a boogie board. And then I was like, you know what? I think that we need to get back to, to surfing. So when I was 13. I went back to, you know, it had been about a three-year hiatus and I started surfing again. And, and then we had a really fun little rat pack here of, of little groms and we kind of pushed each other to, to catch waves that were probably like two, three foot, but that was everything for us. And there was, a, there was a legendary guy down the street named Dr. Daniels, and we all had nicknames. We called him the Birdman. And he just, you know, he was in his 40s, maybe even 50, and he just had this aura about him, you know, and he'd go down the street every morning and just have this huge smile on his face, a coffee cup in his hand, and I mean, he'd catch these waves on his longboard. And he'd do little switch stances and he'd hoot and howl. And we were just like, oh, my God, he's a legend. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, when I was about 13 or 14, he went to Colorado on a snowboarding trip and he had a heart attack and died. And he had just surfed that day and he died in Colorado. And, and so he had a wet wetsuit in his car and it was just this big thing. It was all moldy and nasty and it was just devastating. And his wife was um, also an avid surfer and she was devastated. And then, you know, it just kind of unraveled. But, you know, I'll never forget his, you know, the experience of seeing him surf and how stoked he was. And, and I included him in the book, too. Wow. Wow. That's that's a really, really a sad story to think that, you know, <laughs> it's terrible. And I guess this sort of brings me to because I guess we're talking about somebody dying who's a surfer and somebody that you admire. I guess we could talk about the main character or one of the main characters of your book, who's your friend, Mike, Mike Brandt. Do you think you could tell us about Mike? Yeah. 
Okay, so so like I said, I, I came from you know the the upper middle class suburbia where we would play lacrosse and organize sports and you know I, there was always this image and we we're going to go to college and then we're going to get these corporate jobs and so when I went down to North Carolina my sophomore year I met Mike and I wrote about him in the book and I was just I was shocked. I, I didn't really know how to process Mike. I didn't really, I'd never met anyone like him. He was just, he didn't give a shit. And, <laughs> you know, he wasn't afraid to put himself out there. And, you know, some people were kind of creeped out or maybe offended. And at, at the beginning, I, I didn't really know if I should be hanging out with someone like that. Then I thought about it and then I just felt his energy. And I was like, you know what, life is better for just, you know, if we go for it and just be who we really are. And so, you know, all of us were super inspired by Mike and, you know, we're never going to be normal human beings thanks to Mike because whatever we thought was weird and unusual, Mike always took it to the next level. <laughs> and he didn't know how to, to surf when, when I first met him. And he was coming from a town, Wake Forest, which is a couple hours from Wilmington, North Carolina. And he had maybe tried surfing once or twice, but I decided, you know, this guy has this amazing energy. Let's see what he can do in the water. And so I, I just started taking him down to Carolina Beach and we surfed for a couple months, these little crappy waves. And he was just so excited. There was never an opportunity or situation that he said no to. And then that comes to the one of the opening stories, his Bayesian baptism. He had been surfing for a couple months, just really crappy waves. And we get to Barbados, and I don't know if have you ever been to soup bowls? No, no, I haven't. You should check out some of the videos of Kelly <laughs> Slater surfing that wave or some of those big swells. It's it's a really powerful wave, and that was at the time was far beyond our level or comprehension. And you know, Mike didn't even think about that. He just said you know, hold the camera, I'm going out. And I was like, <laughs> okay, like I knew enough that the ocean had already at that point taught me several humbling lessons. So I knew that it was probably out of bounds for me, but I, I just watched him. I said, like, okay, I'll, I'll take some photos of you. And I really love telling that story of, of just, you know, just a huge set coming. And he had this, this amazing new board from our friend, the big kahuna, which is also, he's also another legend. And Mike had never caught a wave with that board and he got smoked and board snapped in half. And then he, then it turned into, you know, he was, he was going for swimming for his life. And, you know, that whole experience when he came washing up to the beach and he just, at first he was gassed and he looked like he had seen a ghost. He was just pale in the face. And then he finally packed some, some hair into his lungs and, you know, he just started laughing and smiling. And you know, I think that that's, you know, starting to tap into the essence of surfing where it's like, we're all going to take a heavy wipeout or life in general. Like, you know, it's not going to always pan out exactly how you plan, but if you can take it, absorb it, learn from it, and then laugh about it, you know, that's, that's when you're, you know, tapping into something really special. And so, you know, Mike, after that point, you know, was just really hooked on surfing and we took several other trips around and, Unfortunately, when he was 31, uh, he passed away in Panama. I don't know if you want me to, to build into like the story of how he got to Panama or. Yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Mike 
after we graduated from university, uh, one of my best friends, Matt Munns, and I, we, we decided that we should go to San Diego because everyone says, okay, East Coast is one thing, but if you really want to see like power in the next level, you need to tap into the Pacific Ocean. And so we decided that we we're going to go cross country. And Mike, he stayed behind in Wilmington, and, and it's a small town, Wrightsville Beach. And unfortunately, around that particular time, that's when pills started getting introduced to the scene, Oxycontins. And luckily, Mons and I went to California, and we were just trying to survive in the Pacific. But you know, Mike didn't have that pushing him on the you know back in North Carolina, so he got he got really into the pills and. We were hoping they'd come to California. He did on a visit and we got epic waves, but then he went back to North Carolina and we just started hearing reports that he was not doing well. He was engaged. A girl cheated on him and then he just started this kind of downward spiral and it didn't really sound like he was in a good place. So one of our best friends was managing a hostel in Bocas del Toro. I don't know if you've ever heard of that place, but... Uh, it's world famous and, you know, it's that surfer's paradise. Yeah. So, okay, Mike was landlocked. He was a couple hours from the sea in North Carolina. Bad breakup, bad habits. Maybe it's best that you, you try to change the scenery, get back into surfing. And so he went down there and, you know, he was not right. He was not right. And he went down to this supposed paradise. And four months later, we're getting calls that, you know, he's hospitalized. And it was just, okay, well, okay, he's learning his lesson. We're going to get him back to the States and and then he's going to clean up and and recover. He's recovered from so many gnarly things in the ocean. Of course, he handled that. And then, you know, a couple of days later, we get the report from Shane that he he passed away. Oh, wow. Yeah. So So it was it was really devastating. And I was at the time in California, I was living on a sailboat. A 27-foot sloop I bought called the Manana. And uh, also on a side note, I didn't know anything about sailing. <laughs> but I figured the best way to learn is to get one and start putzing around. So we start – I got a, a boat up in Oceanside. And, you know, I just started trying to find people who, who told me they knew what they were doing. I said, let's go. You know, and just little by little, we start kind of – start getting a feel for it, you know. Various things happened, but we learned and recovered. And next thing I know, I'm going out to the Channel Islands, spending days there. And then the next level was to move down to Ensenada and try to go out to Todos Santos and dive and fish and surf there. And so I was doing that and I was on a high. And then we got this news from about Mike. And so, you know, it was devastating to say the least. And so we decided that we we're going to cremate him and move his ashes back to North Carolina, Redsville Beach. And so I don't know if, have you ever been to a paddle out? No, I haven't. No. It's really surreal. And it was, it was uh, not long after, a couple of years after Andy Irons had passed away. And I had never seen anything like that. And I, I remember watching the videos of them like dumping flowers and there's a big circle and people throwing water and stuff. But I never experienced it. And then, you know, it was really like a surreal moment until we were going out into the water. And I took that first like duck dive, like, holy shit, we're about to do a paddle out to one of my best friends. And it just, it it seemed like it happened like that. 
It didn't yeah. seem real. And it gives me chills right now just thinking about that. And we paddled out there and, you know, his dad's in the middle with his brother on a boat. And, you know, it was just the, the energy was was all over the map. Then there was people on land. There was weirdos on land, which, you know, they didn't want anything to do with the water. But that was the person who Mike was. You know, he mm -hmm. made people be confident to be a human being. He wasn't just all of a sudden, oh, I'm a surfer. I'm cooler than everyone else. He was like, okay, see that guy on the corner of the bar? that no one's talking to, let's buy him a beer. Maybe he's got a story. And it's so true. His friend Tara said that he made you confident to be a human being. And I wouldn't have done any of this stuff if it weren't for Mike's encouragement. He made me you know, feel like I was some sort of superhuman. And so then I started taking all these risks and I was like, you know, I, I can get away with it. Why, keep, why not keep going with it? <laughs> so yeah, we had that we had that paddle out and I just talked a little bit about uh, our early days of chasing I was honest. I didn't have anything prepared. I said we you know talked about chasing waves and women around and we most of the time we get crappy waves or rejected and we just had the time <laughs> of our lives. It wasn't like we put ourselves in situations where we couldn't lose. And we had this amazing celebration for him and all these loving words and you know, it touched so many lives. And then I'm getting ready to go back to my life, you know, my boat in Mexico. And his brother, Jason, said, and I was with my other buddy, Vic, and he said, hold on, boys. And he, he went in and came back out with a couple of vials of Mike's remains. And, and he said that Mike would have wanted this. And, you know, I just, I didn't know what to feel. And I was just beyond touched by it. And you know, then it was just, you know, on that flight back when I had some time to process all the, mo the emotions, I just, you know, dug into my heart and I looked and I just thought about, you know, the essence of Mike and how to honor him. And, you know, I didn't see him like putting him up on some mantle and like grandpa or uncle Mike there, you know, like he was a wild, restless soul that loved surfing. So, you know, how do you honor that? And then I just went back to like, you know, what I talked about, like, we'd always just, what are we going to do today? And like, get barreled, Mike. And like, always talking about like, you know, how to, how to get him in the tube. And a lot of times he was just so enthusiastic, had like the perfect stance, but maybe not the right positioning. And he'd wear the lip on the shoulder. <laughs> we had so much, I had so much fun. He just, yeah, he's just a legend. And so it didn't take long really just to just like, you know what? screw it. Let's just, I'm going to sell this boat uh, at the time too. Even though I was, had done this amazing mission, I was kind of, my life was in this, this great transition as well, where my father was diagnosed with cancer and I had fallen in love with this girl, but then she, you know, it, it didn't work out. And so I was devastated there. And then the, you know, the last thing that happened with Mike was just, that was just it. And so I was like, you know what? I, I need to change this around. Like, you know, they say the bad things happen in three. Okay. There's three things like what's going to happen now. I kind of, at that point in the initial stages of that trip, like I felt like I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of anything and mm -hmm. right, I wasn't afraid to die at that first moment. And then I cry, I sold everything, loaded up the pathfinder, you know, I had a little going away party. And so I started the trip off like hungover, not knowing really where I was going. <laughs> I had spent years going to Baja and I knew some Spanish by then, but I just was just kind of drove down there. And then 
you know, and I, I write about that in the preface that like, you know, it was all foggy. It kind of was a mirror to like how I was feeling just like, what am I doing? What's my purpose? And then, you know, it was just, and I, I was looking at Mike's ashes and just like, what the hell? And then all of a sudden it just, something changed and the, you know, the sun came out and it, it just did these amazing waves and just like, it was just a sign. It just hit me right in the heart. Like, wow, like there's a lot of reason to live and I need to keep going with this. And I just felt it. And I was like, I'm going to take this as far as it can go. And I'm going to look for that perfect wave. And, you know, I can't do anything but do that. It was just one of those things that goes beyond words. I mean, I tried to write about it, but, <laughs> you know, it was just a special moment. And there were so many little idiosyncrasies and like little messages from the spirit of Mike on that on that journey. And, you know, when I was going through some of the roadblocks, if, if you've ever been to Baja, like, you know, they have the checkpoints, um, they have the federales or the military checkpoints and they get you out of the car and they'll do a search and it's, it's intimidating. You know, they got yeah. those big guns and you know, especially you don't speak Spanish and they start moving things around and there's maybe a part inside of you, like, are they going to plant something? And I've had friends who have been extorted. There's all sorts of horror stories in Southern California about Baja, you know, and now I'm by myself and then I start looking around and, you know, next thing you know, they, they come across Mike. And, and then they start talking and there's all this chatter and, and, and I'm just like, all right, here we go. <laughs> like, okay, okay, es este? And it's like, what is this? And it's like, oh, este es mi amigo Mike. Oh, that, that's my friend, Mike. And then the, and it was in, uh, Mike loved camouflage. So it was fitting that the, the little urn or vial there was in a little camo beer koozie. And so they would pull it out of the camo koozie and look at it. And then I'd say that. And then they'd look around. And oftentimes it was happened more than once. And they're like, ¿Y el resto? And like, where's the rest of them? <laughs> and then I was like, well, you know, am I going to tell them all these surf stories about Mike? And it's like, well, like, you know, just cutting it short. Like, you know, he passed away as a surfer. And I'm giving him, you know, his parents and family gave me his ashes. And I'm on, like giving him a final send off. And usually right after that, they're like, Buen viaje. And it was just like, you know, yeah. I, those were those kind of moments where I felt like he was looking out for me. And then there was a time in Mexico and Selena Cruz. I don't know if you've ever heard of that area. Is that that's uh, near, of, uh, um, good, good right point pl breaks? Yeah, Playa Escondido and everything. Is that, is that? Yeah, it? so it's not far from Puerto Escondido. And Puerto Escondido. Yeah, sorry. Puerto Escondido, the hidden port. And uh, <laughs> so I, I had been through Puerto Escondido. And it was in November, so it wasn't their like, you know, like proper Porto, but it was good enough for me, <laughs> you know, probably double overhead, <laughs> you know, pretty, really heavy. And I had, I got one of the local guys gave me a nod on a wave that, you know, I thought he was going and he gave me a nod and it just was one of those really incredible waves that just you know, I was just pulsing with energy. Oh my God, I finally got one. And I just wanted to like give the guy a hug and, and this and that. And we had this connection and, and, and I told him how I'd been spearfishing in the area. And he, this guy Bujo, and he was interested. And I actually had like a small little rail gun, single band gun. And I just hooked the guy up. And then he was like, okay, well, you're my friend. So come out. And we, we went out and you know, sure enough, I end up meeting people from Selena Cruz and that's where I wanted to travel to. I was like, I'm probably going to go to Selena Cruz the next day. And then sure enough, oh, you're a <laughs> surf guide from Selena Cruz. Like, oh, 
boom, here we go. Thank you. And so, <laughs> so next thing I know, I just kind of went with that and, and we started hanging out and it was in November. So that was the off season. It's not, you know, Selena Cruz gets really busy with those big surf packages that they offer. And I had never heard about that before that, that you have to have a surf guide. You know, what the hell is that? You know, like, what if I'm by myself and there's nobody <laughs> around in this like perfect, like desert point break? Can I just sneak out and get a few? And this guy, Oliver is like, gringo, I don't think that's a good idea. You know? And so, you know, you just feel it. You feel the look, you feel it. And it's like the intuition tells you, okay. So then luckily it was the off season. So we started going together. I just was driving them. They would just pile in. I, I drive the locals. So they were my guy or my friends or whatever. So we got all these waves and point breaks to ourselves. And one day it kind of sucked. And I decided that I was going to go spear fishing. And I ended up getting like a nice size Trevally. And, and it was a one guy, Oliver, it was his girlfriend, lady's birthday. And so like I got this fish. It was so surprising that I speared it. And this guy, Oliver, was so excited. And I held up the, the fish like comida. And they all started going nuts on the bluff. And then I saw Oliver <laughs> running around like, like what is he doing and I, and I even wrote about it it was like he was like searching around like a dog looking for a place to poop and he ends up finding like a piece of a net and he just runs and jumps like five off like a five meter cliff into the water to help me get this fish in and I was like oh my god he must be really in love with this girl ladies and we end up getting corralling the fish and they invite me to a party and in that party is where I'm with the senora and, and I'm making um, scallop potatoes and she's doing the rice and beans and, and fish. And it's just like this really amazing time. And then all of a sudden they say something about Mike and I was like, well, where is he? And I'm like, oh, he's in the car. And she's like, what? You left him in the car? And I'm just like, what? Is someone going to steal my friend's ashes? And she's like, no, no, no. You go get him. And so then I walk out there and it's kind of scratching my head. And then I brought him back and it was just like, the whole party lit up and it was just, you know, we started talking about his stories and how weird he was and different things that he did and, and everyone was laughing and it really was like, drove the point home that, you know, that I was on a spiritual journey and that his spirit was with me and helping me along and I just needed to keep going with it and also be a little bit more careful and, and you know, <laughs> take him closer, don't leave him in the car. So then he, then I put, when I go to like a hostel or camp, like I would, take them in <laughs> so um, oh, that's hilarious yeah that's so cool but I mean just before you got to Puerto Escondido you'd just gone through La Paz with people that were being beheaded in the streets I mean that was pretty gnarly Mexico that you were going through was there any moments that when you were traveling through any part of actually uh, Latin America where you were really afraid for your life yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> Well, there was that, the, the beheadings in La Paz. And, you know, when we were going in there, I linked up with this Canadian girl who was going, heading down to Los Cabos to, to do some whale watching and, and research. And she was this cool, cool girl. And, and she had some contacts in La Paz. And she said that there were some whale sharks. And I was just like, oh my God, super cool. Well, just so happens that there was also some stories that there are some beheadings in there and, and going on in El Centro. And I'm just like, wait, what? And, and so, you know, it was one of those moments, like I was terrified. And then I kind of reminded myself that like, 
I'm not involved in the drug trade. Let's just break this down. I'm here to honor my friend. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm doing this thing. And if they want to kill me for that, you know, like I'm here running a risk anyway. I think when I crossed that border, I kind of knew you always knew. Mm-hmm. We always felt that in Mexico where you're taking this big risk. You're going from a, a land of have to the have nots and you already have a car. Right. And you're a gringo. So they think you have all this money. So I was not afraid to lose my car mm-hmm. and all of my possessions on that trip. And I think when I lost that fear of like, oh, this is mine, you know, and I heard so many other stories of people being robbed when we got to Panama and we were going to ferry to Colombia, like half the the fleet there that was like 10 cars, like five or six of them had been robbed, but like, you know, expensive cameras. And it's like those things where you have these things you're afraid to lose. You're thinking about that fear. And then guess what happens with that fear if you obsess about it can manifest. So yeah. that was really scary with the, the La Paz thing, but it ended up being that it was a war within the, the drug cartels. And there was, there was rumors that the president Nieto was, was supporting one of the cartels and trying to wipe out the other. So we went in there, set up an opportunity to go look at the whale sharks. That was an incredible experience. And then the idea was get the hell out of there. And as I kept journeying throughout Mexico, we started to hear more and more about clashes happening with the cartels. And then there were 43 students that were protesting, university students that were protesting about the involvement of government with the cartels. Right. And I believe they were from De Efe area, like Mexico City area. And one day when they were coming back from the university, they were pulled over by the police, federales, and they were never seen again. Yeah, yeah. And didn't the one whole... lady say that they they were fed to the earth or something like that? There's, wasn't that? Oh, that um... was that was in that was that actually, was another one. Nah, uh, that was in Colombia. <laughs> but different. <laughs> and I don't. This is, this is actually really serious stuff. But it was it was one of those things. The forty three students. It just after hearing that the whole country exploded. So if anyone goes to Mexico, they have those, you'll see the quota where you have to pay the tobos and oftentimes it's expensive. Well, you know, that's government subsidized and the OXOs as well. So that's exactly where the population went. They started just smashing the quotas and the burning the the OXOs, the convenience stores. It's like our our 7-Eleven and Mm -hmm. And it was it was really intense, but I just kept reminding myself that I'm not in politics. I'm not working for this like conglomerate like Monsanto or you know exploiting these people. I'm just a surfer trying to snake his way through and honor his friend. That being said, there's definitely times where you know my heart was racing, and in the book I try to let the reader know you know when I was uncomfortable. <laughs> Well, you definitely sort of sense it when reading reading through the stories. It's it's kind of pretty hair raising, and um, I was just wondering because the title of your book is the Pathfinder Diaries. Do you think you could describe what your Pathfinder looked like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. If you get to the Columbia section, I talk about it was a two thousand two Pathfinder, and I talk about how the Pathfinder had kind of this great metamorphosis throughout the journey. So it started, that car started with my cousin 
Brian, who is working for the family business in Easton, Pennsylvania. Then the, he got a new car. My sister got that car. Throughout my journaling and ESL, then also my sister was in line to get another car, and she gave me a good deal on the Pathfinder and uh, pretty much gifted it to me. And then I drove the thing out to San Diego and, you know, just your standard four-wheel drive Pathfinder. And then by the time I got to Mexico, that was when I met the guys from Selena Cruz and the guy was like, oh, la camioneta. And then that's what they were all calling it. So then it had a title. It wasn't just the Pathfinder. It was the camioneta. And, and then from there, we got to a place in, in Colombia and I'm trying to trying to find waves there. And I met this family and there's this senora who's very, very, very religious. And she told me that it was the, it was not just the camioneta. It was the camioneta del Dios. And I was like, <laughs> wow, this thing has come a long way from, you know, the Eastern suburbs to, I even talk about it uh, and you can appreciate that to slugging it out in my metal coffin on highway <laughs> five coming from Point Break, <laughs> to the camioneta, to God's chariot. <laughs> it has a nice ring to it. And then actually there's also something interesting about the cover. It was kind of a joke between uh, my friend Vic and I about, you know, what are these stories? I tell him a couple of stories from the journey when I was just in Mexico. And, and you know, we both have read some of uh, Che Guevara, The Motorcycle Diaries. So then we just kind of came up with the joke that this is this is going to be the Pathfinder Diaries. And this particular photo, I had just driven through a hurricane in Baja, in route. That was from the story Farting Back to Life. And I'm going through all these mud pits. I just had diarrhea, so I was really afraid. And I, I got to this spot that I can't mention, but the car was completely covered in mud. And I thought it would be funny to just trace out the Pathfinder Diaries and send it. You know, in the beginning, I didn't think that, that this would ever become a, a book. You know, yeah. it just, I was just following my heart. And then at the end of the story, I knew, I knew that I needed to kind of become a writer to tell this story. That's lovely. It's a lovely way that you came kind of full circle and also your story with Mike as well. I don't want to spoil the end of it, but it's a lovely way of actually sort of paying a homage to him and also to to find yourself and to find your true calling that's it that was wonderful and um i was just just wondering how long did the journey last exactly yeah this was uh it was 10 months so i i left in around the end of september october and then i was finished in july so it was about 10 months and it was Again, completely unplanned. And anyone that's been down to South America, in particular Chile or Argentina, July, depending on what you're looking for and depending on how far south you go, but July is oftentimes not really the ideal place, especially to be at the end of the world. Like, you know, it's hurricane force winds and sub zero temperatures down there. Wow. Wow. So I talk about the the Straits of Magellan and I try to pepper in a little bit of history. And then I was like, <laughs> certainly those guys wouldn't be dumb enough to be down there in July. <laughs> so I try to be real with myself and some of it's, you know, fun. I beat myself up and I make mistakes because obviously I was winging it and, you know, I'm only human. So 
<laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And so which countries did you cross to actually get to Ushuaia? Okay, so yeah, and I had to cut a lot of stories out. Initially, this book had 70 stories. Wow. And I had stories from every country that I drove through. And after what I experienced in Mexico, you know, you just seeing all these injustices and knowing that what our consumption and, and how the system is set up, that we're a part of it. It's not just the corrupt government. It's also the corrupt government that's controlled by our corporations that we consumers support and endorse. Yeah. So anyway, I, after doing the whole journey, then I started kind of peppering in a little bit of the politics and it had 70 stories and then I sent it out and I think it was a little overwhelming. So I had to scale that back. But to answer your question, you know, I went from Mexico, went through Guatemala, El Salvador. There's, you have to cross through Honduras just a little bit, which is also a really dangerous place. It's the, the largest, I think it's got the highest murder capital in the world. Wow. But it also has some of the lowest wages. And so I don't know how political you get here, but, you know, if you spend time in Central America, you'll hear legends of the United Fruit Company yes, yeah. and the Banana Republics. And then now it's taken on a new name, Chiquita Banana. So there is a there is a clear link between, OK, if you're going to offer slave wages in a country, there's going to be a, a positive correlation with violence. Yeah. If a child grows up seeing his father working like a slave and not supporting his family, then he sees these drug dealers or whoever, you know, whatever they're doing to make their money selling arms or whatever with all these toys, it's, it's easy for say, Oh, don't do drugs. Don't do this. They're bad people. But think about, we're not understanding what it's like to grow up in those places, mm -hmm. yeah, you know? And so, but I unfortunately had to cut that story out of Honduras and then Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama. And in Panama, I, I visited the site where Mike passed away, passed through David and Bocas del Toro. And, you know, that's a whole nother story. And then I moved on to Colombia, from Colombia, Ecuador, Ecuador, Peru, Peru, Chile, Chile, Argentina, Chile again, and then <laughs> wow, that's that's an incredible journey. It's just it's mind boggling to sort of imagine the the because the, the roads there, apart from the the sort of main motorways or whatever, yet from time to time, most of the roads those roads there are sort of dirt roads with potholes and oh yeah. So that that turns into there's so many hazards, you know. And one of the biggest rules most people who spend time driving around Latin America is you never drive at night. <laughs> You know, that's yeah. when the bad, the bad boys come out at night, but also, you know, with all the potholes and they actually have like different nicknames for potholes because really? it's such a part of the culture. And so then it will turn into some of the worst roads were in Honduras and, you know, even the Pan-American, Paramanacana, and you're weaving around uh, trying to avoid these potholes, but then you also have cattle and you have cars <laughs> And you got, unfortunately, you got children on the side of the road that are saying that they filled in a ditch and they're, they're asking for money. And that's really sad to see. But yeah, the roads tell the story of the country. Mm. 
So the poorest countries had some of the worst roads. And, and for me, Mexico, you have the libre and you have the quota. And so libre is means free. But you get what you pay for. Yeah. <laughs> and the camioneta got hammered. We were on en route to uh, Puerto Escondido. And I had in my mind I was going to make it there like, Halloween and then my birthday was just coming up. I'm going to get to Puerto Escondido. I saw like a swell and it just like surfers can relate. When you have that little carrot, like, I'm going to run through a wall to get there. And, uh, you know, I was going around and Mexico has a lot of these topes, like these speed bumps. And some of them are on like a blind turn and which were on the Libre. And so the camioneta was getting hammered. And on one of them, it just busted up, blew up the, the muffler. And so the muffler's dragging behind me and I'm in my obsessive mind, like I'm getting to Porto and I put like a little <laughs> hanger on it and like, okay, this is good enough. This is my engineering and little hanger on is right under the axle. Perfect. And then sure enough, another tope and, 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 and I was getting really close to, to Porto. I was only like, you know, another hour out in the dark, you know, and he's going down the hill and there's just sparks flying and everyone, I passed by a rodeo and thought I was going to sneak in there and get some culture and everybody stopped and just looked at me like, where the hell are you coming from, gringo? And I was like, all right, there's not going to be any authentic interaction. I'm going to head on to Puerto Escondido. And that's in that story. I was like, that's how I understand like why it's called Puerto Escondido, like the hidden port, because it was such a radical road to get through, through the mountains and all the speed bumps. And you, you know, you get up on top of the hill and it was one of the most beautiful sunsets that I've ever seen. And the town is like hidden below the mountains and the clouds. And it was, you know, it was a beautiful mm -hmm. moment, but yeah, the roads are, are tough. And the pathfinder was seriously, it turned into a character. It was <laughs> my, my travel companion. And it was so so reliable, you know, there's a couple of flat tires that blew out the muffler, but you know, overall that thing, what we were able to get through and pull off was, was pretty amazing. And, and it was, it made it painful at the end to, to leave it behind, to leave it behind. Oh, that's so, that's so sad. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you left it to a guy in, in Chile. Yeah. At the end, there's a guy down at the bottom in Ushuaia in Argentina and initially I had, I had thought about gifting the truck because, you know, you do a trip like that, you put yourself out there and I needed a lot of help along the way. And, you know, the families of Latin America would consistently, I'm a stranger in need of a place to stay, stay here, hear some food. And you look around and they're just in a little cement block, Wow, you know. And the love that they gave me along the way, I was just like, wow. And that's, that pushes me to this day to, to keep giving back. But at the end, I thought, how fitting would that be to gift it to an organization or to a special family? And one of my friends, uh, Pache, hopefully you get a chance to look at that story. He's from northern Peru, absolute legend. And his dad had, had done some traveling through Latin America in the 80s via bus. And his dad is such a legend and he's a dentist, which is such an interesting combination. So you have like my buddy Pache, I would say he's like the Jeff Clark of wow. Avericks to, to Northern Peru. Like he was one of the first surfers. He pioneered all these spots, absolute charger. 
And then you have like his dad as a dentist and his dad wanted him to be a dentist. And so I thought that that was just the most incredible story. And I, I title it Hijo de Dentista, Dentista. Right? the son of the dentist. And that's a knockoff of uh, Patagonia did something on Ramon Navarro, Hijo del Pescador. <laughs> you know, it's an amazing film about Ramon Navarro charging and, and saving land and stuff. And I just thought, oh, that'd be funny to be, okay, son of a dentist. <laughs> And so at the end of our time together, we had this incredible swell, like the biggest swell they had seen in maybe five, 10 years. And we're all on this high and, and, you know, Pache is trying to squat on some land and develop it. And his dad was just like, what is he doing out there? He's wasting his time. And, and I was like, you know what, we should go visit him. And so I took his dad in the, the camioneta and we went out to visit him out in this remote desert spot. And, it was really an incredible experience. We, we got out of the truck and we just went for a swim. And, you know, his dad is almost 90 years old and he just has this look about him. He's just in awe of life. And we just went for a swim and he was just so happy. And I was just in, you know, I'm in love with those guys. And I was just like, you know what, if you guys can make uh, now, by the time I got to Peru, I was like, I got to go all the way. So if you guys can come find a way to get a bus ride or get some money together to get to the end of the world. This truck's yours. Wow. I said that to them and seeing the look on his dad's eyes, just like, Oh, and just imagining the adventures and experiencing it with his son. And, you know, it was a real surreal moment. Unfortunately, it didn't make it into the book, but I'll never forget it. And unfortunately it's, it's so true about so many people in Latin America that, you know, they have all these dreams, but they don't have the financial means. Yeah. So one of the objectives of this story was to try to highlight some people like the Chingon guy in uh, Selena Cruz that they've done everything for surfing and haven't received a cent from it to as well as Pache mm. uh, that maybe people might be inspired. Maybe they go and visit them. Pache has a surf house and people are like, how do I visit Pache? It's like, you go to this town. For Pache, they're like, well, what's his like GPS or coordinates? I was like, go to the town and ask for Pache. We don't in our Western world or whatever, we can't understand that. Yeah. But that's the wild, wild west. That's how it works. Everybody knows that guy. And everybody <laughs> like, loves him. What's what's incredible in your journey and your odyssey was just to how I'm sure that you sort of attracted the right people as well with your open heart and your open mind. And you made the most amazing encounters with the most amazing people and characters. And you couldn't sort of even imagine it. You had, if you, if you wanted to imagine the book or sort of write a story, that they're in there. And I was just wondering if that's a sort of, that's a symbol of the Latin American people is that they're very open minded people. Yeah. If you go down to Latin America, preferably alone, and you know a little bit of the language, you're going to see magic. Yeah. The things that they do on an everyday basis to survive and get through the day is absolutely incredible. And so one of the things is, what is the saying? Necessity is the, the at the root of, of all invention or the heart of invention, you know? And so what the mechanics, you know, how they get a rig things is for one is hilarious. And then, you know, like, like the camioneta, I blew out, I blew out the, the muffler. So then I went to a mechanic, you know, in Puerto Escondido, I was just like, 
I don't want to buy a new muffler. What's the cheapest fix you can do? And so he put side pipes going out the passenger door. Like, you know, my dad was like, yeah, we used to have those in the Camaros or 70s or 80s, you know, like one of those. And it was really funny about that is that as we got along, we got into like Chile is those side, like it had this real guttural and people would hear me coming and we go down these streets like in Chile and it's the, the camioneta setting off car alarms as we're cruising along. <laughs> and the other thing about Latin America too is, like I said, is, is the hospitality. So I had traveled to Latin America before, but my first trip, real trip was in 2007 where I went to Peru to teach English. This is the first time I went by myself. Okay. I gave up the, the, the California life and, and all that. And I said, I'm, I'm going to go for it. I want to do something. And I went down there and I thought I knew a little bit of Spanish. And it turns out that Spanish involves more than yo soy Cori, <laughs> tango, 25 años, y estoy soltero. <laughs> so I learned and, you know, right away I was kind of at a position where it was difficult. Just I felt like a baby because I couldn't communicate. And, you know, then I'm also trying to learn the ropes of teaching English that I've never done before either. And I'm working at this language school. It's like a chain language school. And it's like they give me like a hundred page like manuscript of like pedagogy and like theories. And I'm just like, oh, my God, how am I going to do all that? And I'm getting observed on like my night class at like nine o'clock at night. And it was and then they're having me work on weekends. It was kind of a lot. And then I got sick. And then I got sick again and I started losing weight. I lost about eight kilos and, mm -hmm. you know, I was really sick. And this senora that I didn't even really know, all of a sudden she just saw me and invited me over and she was just like, you eat with me. Her name was Aura and <sighs> it makes me feel so good. My life changed in that moment when she invited me in introduced me to their whole family who happened to all be surfers. They're like a surf dynasty in wow. throughout Peru. Like everywhere I wanted to go, like, oh, my, my uncle lives there. You stay with him. Because they're always, you know, once you get in with the Latinos, they're protective of you because they know like, okay, gringo, something bad could happen to this gringo. Yeah. <laughs> and then that, you know, then, you know, he might say, don't come to this place because they understand like gringos at times, can represent hope and tourism and those kinds of things, opportunities. And so, you know, she nursed me back to health and that inspired me to keep going. And I kept teaching. And then that went from teaching in Chiclayo, which is by the way of Pacas Mayo, which is an incredible left-hander to, and then I moved up to Talara where I met Pache. I taught in, in Galapagos. I taught in Jeffrey's Bay, South Africa. Oh, wow. And then I got a job in San Diego where then I really learned like, oh, my God, you can make a career out of teaching English as a second language. <laughs> and I start hearing some of my colleagues talk. And I was like, oh, my God. So you guys don't all just wing it. <laughs> <laughs> and that inspired me to uh, to get my master's in in the field and and UCSD extension ELI. I'll, I'll forever be indebted to them and, and their support of me. And I still teach creative writing through them. But going back to the purpose of, of the, the heart and soul of Latin America is, is the senora. Mm. 
the amount of love, we can all learn from that in the small family, the amount of love the senora gives to her kids and oftentimes a stranger is, you know, beyond words. And unfortunately, Aura just, just passed away. I put her in the, the acknowledgement and, and I wouldn't be here telling this story. There's so many people I wouldn't be here telling this story if it weren't for them. But definitely Aura is the reason that, you know, I stayed in Peru. I kept working through it and I learned what good food was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, so today you're actually, you founded Escuela Sin Fronteras. Is that how mm-hmm. you say it? <laughs> <laughs> and so that, uh, could you tell us about your, your language school? Yeah. So Escuela Sin Fronteras last year, I went down to, to Panama. I had been doing creative writing with UCSD again and I moved down to Panama and with the objective that I want to give back. So I had this adventure with the Pathfinder Diaries, you know, the, the stories like Aura and Pache and all these people that, that have done so much for me to make it, to ensure that I made it to the end of the world. You know, you never forget that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, after that trip, I, I went and tried to work a few years for my, the family business with my dad, my uncle, my brother, my cousins, everyone in an office a couple hours away from the ocean where you're like in a cubicle, like, you know, working 50 hours a week. Can you leave at 4.30? Uh-uh. Got to stay, you know, one of those TGIF. And it was just like killing my soul. So I knew that that wasn't my path. I knew that my father's dream and my dream could not coexist. You know, and so... I also had started these stories. And so every weekend I'd work like, you know, 50 hours and then I was teaching at at a community college and then I'd try to like tell a few of these stories and it was just like kind of ripping off a bandit. I knew I needed to to do more. So, you know, I quit all that and put some time into the stories and then moved to Panama to set up Escuela Sin Fronteras. And the goal there is to, to bridge the gap, the cultural gap, which I experienced. Oftentimes, Latinos and gringos, we all want the same thing. You know, we want to have our families healthy and safe. And for surfers, we want to spend time in the water. And so oftentimes, there's just a gap in communication and cultural awareness. So that was really my objective going down there is I wanted to teach Spanish to gringos to give them the opportunities to have these life-changing experiences with the locals Mm. and then... I decided that I was going to teach English to the locals as a free service. And it was really interesting that when I got down there, you know, I had all these these ideas. Okay, free English. They're going to love it. I have a master's in English. I've taught English for, you know, close to 10 years at that time. And and everyone's, oh, que bueno, que bueno. Like my, my child's going to go, this or that. And then the day comes and it's in this little open it was actually an old church but it's completely open it's just got four pillars it's this pink building and it's a really small town remote town that i'm at and it shows up to the time six o'clock and and i look around and i'm thinking i had this whole speech that i was going to talk to the whole town and how we're going to rewrite the whole script and i looked around and i had more chickens in the classroom than human beings (laughs) (laughs) so that was that was you know that was a gut check and that was also you know the we have so much to learn from them 
that right off the mm-hmm. bat, it's like, you think you're going to come in with certain objective and this is how it's going to go. Uh-uh. You know, <laughs> little by little, I'll start chipping away and just getting involved in their projects. That was the first thing I want to do before I go. And not that I had the money to buy property, but I first wanted to go and rewrite the script because so many gringos go down there and they buy a piece of property and then they build up their business and then they have Latino employees, but they're not, they don't really have that authentic interaction. So I said, right off the bat, let's just get involved and see where I can help out. So I just gravitated to this one area. I happened to have cantina, cold beer, good food that the dad, the dad is a fisherman. I love to fish. The mom is just wonderful Floricita. And she happens to have two kids that are some of the best surfers in Panama. So I was just like, right away, okay, give me some food and I'll work with your kid. And I help him with some English. And this guy, Kakaroto, he's such a good kid. And I started working with him and then I got involved with another guy. And next thing we know, we're, we're putting together a portfolio for him to get an ISA scholarship, what? which he ended up getting. Excellent. So he, and then the COVID thing happened and then it just, things got moved around. But, you know, some big names have one that like Carlos Munoz from Costa Rica and like, this is, this is a stepping stone to, you know, for bigger and better things. So, you know, it it was really cool to be involved in that. And then, you know, throughout the season, you know, their season there, their high season goes from, you know, late November through about April or May, that's their dry season. So last year was my first true season. And it was really incredible. What we did was a, a thing called Spanish Sundays. And so we just moved around and I, I charged, you know, it was more about for the local, you know, the, the expats that were living there. Like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm a gringo. I'm not even from here. You've been here for 10 years. And, you know, in a couple of days, I'm, I already know these people better than you. Like, I'm not saying you have to, but let me just offer the service. It's whoever wants it can come. And so I started doing it. It was, we just go to different, different venues each Sunday. And it was like, okay, well, how, where can I find a Panamanian on a Sunday? <laughs> and, you know, there's obviously there are, some are at home or maybe some at a church, but a lot of them go to cantinas. <laughs> so that's where I went. And so then I was a gringo with this whiteboard and I would put a collared shirt on and I would start teaching gringos Spanish around a cantina. So you could imagine being a Panamanian looking at this gringo teaching your language. Are you going to be a little curious? So that, that was the idea. They would get curious. I'd engage them in Spanish. And if I was doing it correctly, they would finish with the marker because they are some of the best teachers I have ever known, Latin America. We have so much to learn from these campesino farmers and how, how to cultivate, live off the land, how to respect each other, you know, treat each other as human beings, family, strangers, we're all family. And so, you know, to see them do their thing, to, you know, was, was incredible. And I would say I had varying attendance. You know, one day we had 15 or 14 students going to a waterfall and that was really incredible. And we did a little vocabulary and then we went up to the waterfall and 
we thought it was like a couple hour hike. It ended up being three hours each way. <laughs> you know, that's the classic <laughs> Latino concept of time. And it was not just like uh, we were on a trail. We're going, we're doing zigzags across <laughs> the river. And some of the girls didn't even bring shoes because they saw the local guy without shoes. Then, you know, this girl Mimi, we're just like, oh my God, Mimi. And the French guy's nice enough. Bruno, he takes off his shoes and gives the shoes to Mimi. And, you know, he's going barefoot. And then all of a sudden we get to this amazing, like the, the base of this waterfall. And, and the guy goes up and like a monkey in Tuco. And he does all these like switchback rope systems and stuff. And it's like 40, 50 feet up in the air. It's pretty critical. And and some of the, some of the girls and even a, an older gentleman as well, like he was just like, we're not going up there. And we're like, oh, but you got it. It's incredible. No, 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 we're not going up there. So what does Tuco do? He goes around, he grabs his machete, falls a small little tree, cuts notches in it, and he makes them a ladder. Amazing. And, and, and someone was like, oh, that's incredible how you planned that. I'm like, I didn't plan anything. <laughs> Just have, I have ultimate faith in Latin America to teach all of us. So mm -hmm. I have some really incredible humans down there that you know i i learned through this high season of of who are my guys like you know we did everything from the waterfall to this girl eileen she did salsa dancing she's from venezuela and that was really cool doing that before the coronavirus hit and quarantines and stuff and there was one student you know who kept consistently showing up this guy ted from maine he said he was going to stay in our area for one day and then he was going to go to Bocas. Well, you know, like five months later, he's flying back to the States with me. Like, and he would show up, you know, to every class, you know, and it, it really inspired me. And actually this, this high season, I've, I put together a packet that I'm going to try to offer, you know, at the hotels and stuff so that I don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's like 115 pages and just everything from, introduction to to music to slang to grammar and and then when i teach these classes i don't have you know again i have it all right there so fantastic, fantastic. So. that's a, such such a great story so so when's the next season of escuelas in fronteras going to be okay happening? yeah we're going we're going down there uh the first week of december wow okay that's very soon then yeah yeah i'm really excited right now i've been back up here to get this out there. That's one of the things down there in Panama, especially the rainy season is, you know, you might get bigger swells, but you get blackouts and dumping rain. And so if you have to get things done, it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it was also really great to come back here to visit um, my parents because, you know, you never know, ne never take anyone's relationship or anyone's company for granted that's one thing i've learned several times like you know i feel fortunate to be here having this conversation I, it could have yeah. gone i took a lot of risks yes, exactly. and and it could have gone the other way and so you know i'm happy to help my parents out my dad just had a hip surgery so i've been helping him with the the yard work and stuff and then doing the online classes has been really incredible too so not only yeah. am i like really fortunate to get this book off the ground but I teach creative writing through UCSD Extension. There's a class that I developed, Finding Our Voices, Telling Our Stories. And the class is called Finding Our Voices, Telling Our Stories. And it's a, it's a nine-week class through, again, UCSD Extension. We'll, we'll include the links there. But 
the goal is to get the students to dig into what is the story? Why are they here? Everyone has a story to tell. Mm. And I was very fortunate. Uh, one of my biggest mentors is a guy named John Perkins. And he wrote the book that kind of confirmed everything that I experienced through Latin America. It's called Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Oh, wow. And he talks about going around the world, especially Latin America, with the World Bank and other organizations and, and giving these huge loans to these countries to, for their infrastructure. Well, what happens is the countries can't pay those loans. So what do they have to do is they have to open up their natural resources to these big corporations. And so what it does is really just polarizes the wealth and it just perpetuates the poverty of Latin America. So I, I read that book and it was just so powerful to see that. And then he's also, he has great ties with shamanism in the Amazon. And I'm just in awe of like everything that he does. And, and so his book was a New York Times bestseller. And I heard he was doing a writing workshop. So I jumped on board. I was at the time I was wow. working in the office and I was just desperate for inspiration. I was following Liz Clark all the time. Like, oh my God, she's doing it. <laughs> she is. <laughs> but, um, you know, and I saw the writing workshop and I jumped on it and at the end of one workshop, he does a, what's called a vision quest. And so he starts with the rattle and he starts just kind of engaging you and, you know, kind of diving into your psyche, your subconscious mind to figure out what, what are the roots of your story? Where does it all begin? And that's that preface that I wrote for this book was mm -hmm. it happened that very first night. And he says the, you know, the purpose of the preface is twofold. It's, it's obviously to hook the reader to, to read your story, but then also to hook you, the writer, to finish it. Because mm -hmm. so many writers out there, they start something and they never finish it. Oh, mm -hmm. I have this work in progress. So my goal is, is digging into the students, obviously inspiring them, but you know, cultivating that vision of where they, you know, what is the message that they want to deliver to the world? Mm -hmm. You know, think of three, three changes you want to see in this world. Who are the people to do it? How can you guide it that way? So it's super rewarding to see the students just, just opening up. And right now I'm teaching two classes. One's got 12 students. The other one's got a character's class has 19, wow. which is like really overwhelming. And I'm excited. You know, I'm really excited for them, but I'm also excited to finish grading that class so that I still haven't posted this yet. Like, hey, friends and family, like this is available. What I thought would be organic though first is to send the hard copies to people who have, you know, impacted the stories and, you know. Lovely, uh, yeah. yeah. Surfers that has no connection with, the, I mean, obviously the ocean, we're all connected by the ocean, but with the characters. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I'm really honored to have been able to read it. And it was a fantastic read. And we'll definitely put all the details in the show notes of this episode. And I just love the way at one point in your book, you say that the essence of surfing and traveling boils down to talking story. And I guess this is what this is what it is, you know. <laughs> yeah. And if, if I could just say one thing about that, and I don't know if this guy is still alive. His name is John, this older guy that I went sailing with. And he was another guy, a huge influence on my life to just taught me just to go for it. We nicknamed him Delio. He said, mm -hmm. I don't fuck around. It's not my Delio. But we would, he would just show up and we'd go to these places. 
on the boat, but he, he referred to it as surf bank. He said, the most important thing we have as surfers is the surf bank. The surf bank never <laughs> depreciates what? in value. You can only make withdrawals from it, you know, and it only gets better. And it gets so, better. That's so true. That's fantastic. Know, I think that that's what we're trying to do. And I think one of the things with storytelling is it, it educates you on the past, but it also prepares you for the future. So, you know, maybe this book, not maybe, the hope for one of the messages or takeaways from this book is to inspire someone to go down to Latin America, take a risk, yeah. learn the language and build on that surf bank. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a lovely way to actually wrap up this this wonderful conversation. It was a, an absolute pleasure to have this discussion, to hear your stories and and I'm sure that Mike's looking down right now and thinking, wow, you know, this is if he's made any impact, it's definitely on your life and on, on all the people he's met and it's great. It's great to have been able to to share this information in this moment with you. I'm very grateful. And I will say this before this podcast, I went and checked the surf. I said, I'm going to do this ocean riders podcast. Let me check the surf. Well, it's gray day. It's cold and it's blown out. Oh, so what did okay. I do? Well, that's, you went to surf. I was like, I'm going to get one. I'm going to get one. I'm going to go straight. I put on my hoodie. The water's like 57. I put on my hoodie, went through the wind. It's like, I'm going to go straight and I'm going to claim it. It was like oh, knee high. And I was like, this one's <laughs> for Mike because I wouldn't be here having this conversation if it weren't for Mike. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, thank you, Mike. And thank you, Corey, for, for being my guest today. I guess uh, we made it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I just love the stories Corey had to tell. You must absolutely pick up a copy of Corey's book and read it, The Pathfinder Diaries, Tales Sculpted by the Sea. It's such a wonderful story and a great Christmas present. You can get hold of it on Amazon and all good bookshops. All the references to where you can get the book and how to get in touch with Corey are in the show notes on your phone or the app you're using to listen to the podcast. Join Corey on Instagram at Escuela Sin Fronteras. So Escuela as in school, E-S-C-U-E-L-A underscore Sin, S-I-N underscore Fronteras, F-R-O-N-T-E-R-A-S. And check out the awesome work Corey is doing in Panama too. The Ocean Riders podcast is a homemade venture and um, I can do with all the support I can actually get. There are a few simple ways you can support the show and the content I craft every week. Number one, subscribe and review. Please make sure to review, share, comment and subscribe to the Ocean Riders podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. This helps tremendously. Number two, spread the word. Help grow the Ocean Riders podcast's reach by sharing your enthusiasm for the podcast and or your favorite episodes by posting about it on social media. Uh, number three, join me on social media. Let's continue the conversation on Instagram at the Ocean Riders Podcast, on Facebook at the Ocean Riders Podcast, or on our Facebook group, the Ocean Riders Community. I've also got a Twitter account at 
Imi podcast. I'm not very good at using it. Um, I don't do this alone. I would like to thank Leng Inke for editing the episode and putting together the content for my website. The intro music is created by me. Anyway, join me on the oceanriderspodcast.com where you can find all the episodes uh, since day one. You can see the progress and you can see some of the epic guests that I've had to share conversations with. Anyway, take care, have fun and enjoy the waves. See you next time. Ciao.